0: All right, we're getting back tonight to our ongoing study on Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, we've broken our study into three main sections, two of which we've completed. We studied all of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Christ. And we studied all of the personal appearances of Christ in the Old Testament in what are theologically identified as theophanies or more technically correct, Christophanies. And now we're working our way through the third and final segment, which is uh, in and of itself is a long and, and detailed study. Um, Christ as represented in the Old Testament through symbols that we call types and shadows. Um, these, are, these are various aspects and elements of the, the story of the Old Testament that were designed by the Lord, designed by God to Uh, point forward to Christ in some specific and special way. And we've broken that down into seven segments, and we've covered uh, three of those so far. We've looked at um, Christ symbolized in Old Testament things, Old Testament structures, and special Old Testament events. And tonight we're starting a section on Christ as symbolically represented in special Old Testament roles. Uh, Roles uh, having to do with special assignments that were given by the Lord to various people in the Old Testament. Uh, Still ahead of us, we're going to do a whole section on Christ represented by specific Old Testament people. There'll be some overlap between our study of the roles and our study of the individuals, Uh, But they they do deserve their own uh, section. So tonight we're starting Old Testament roles. Now uh, traditionally theologians have highlighted three primary roles, and rightly so, uh, in considering how Christ is symbolized in the Old Testament roles. And those three primary roles are those of prophet, priest, and king. It wasn't too long ago as Steve is working his way in leading us through systematic theology that uh, he actually addressed those three great roles um, in the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament as they were intended to point forward to Christ. So we're going to revisit that uh, starting tonight. Uh, But I'm not limiting our study of the roles to just prophet, priest, and king. We'll also look at some additional ones uh, such as uh, the role of savior or deliverer Uh, the role of kinsman, redeemer, the role of the the chosen son in in a couple of very important um, narrative stories of the Old Testament. And then uh, Christ is represented by what is identified as the suffering servant of the Lord. So we'll look at all of those. But for tonight, we're starting with the three primary ones, prophet, priest and king. I won't have time to do all three tonight. We're just going to tackle the very first one. And um, what we're we're going to do with prophet, priest, and king, even though all true prophets of the Lord pointed forward in their own way, to their own degree, to Christ as as a symbol, uh, and all of the true high priests of the Old Testament did so as well, uh, given that there were False prophets, and there were there were uh, sinning high priests. When I say true prophets, true high priests, these are ones that were faithful and called according to the Lord's purpose. And then, of course, um, in the role of king, uh, there were there were what we would consider to be good and godly kings, and then there were wicked kings. And uh, it it should be easy to understand that uh, the wicked kings pointed forward to Christ in a in a much more a uh, twisted way than the uh, the true and and godly kings did. Um, interestingly, in the in the just the traditional description of pro- the roles of prophet, priest, and king, they're actually introduced in Scripture in that exact order. Um, in terms of uh, how the Lord introduced those roles to Israel, uh, prophets came first, followed by the priesthood, followed by uh, the, the role of king as represented, of course, by King David. Um, and for each one of these, what we're going to see also is that none of these, even the, the three primary individuals we're going to focus on for the roles of prophet, priest, and king, none of them perfectly represented or symbolized Christ. Even the good ones, even the godly uh, symbols, uh, they fell short. They, they, of course, could not fully and perfectly symbolize Christ and I will for each one of the roles I'll highlight in which in what way they did symbolize him and in what way they fell short of, of fully representing him so for the first role we'll, we'll start with the prophet role as it was the first that God revealed to his people And as I mentioned, for each one of these, we're going to pick one primary Old Testament personage who, even though all of the the godly prophets pointed forward to Christ, this one individual chosen by the Lord in a greater way, to a greater extent than the others, uh, more perfectly represented him. And of course, that would be in in the um, role of the prophet. That would be Moses. So um, in terms of... The role of the prophet, we need to define what the role is, uh, briefly define it. I know you're all familiar with what a prophet was, what a a, a high priest was, what a king was. But uh, in terms of a, um, a, a working theological definition, the role of the prophet in the Old Testament was someone that was specially selected by the Lord, set apart from the rest of God's people and appointed to function as God's messenger to his people. Um, It wasn't exclusively a role only to the people of God. God did on occasion have prophets to speak to those that were outside of covenant with the Lord. Um, You know, for instance, maybe the most famous example of that was Jonah the prophet who was sent not so much to Israel, but was sent to uh, the... uh, the non-covenant or outside covenant nation of Nineveh uh, with, a, with a prophetic warning of a coming judgment. Uh, and the Lord, of course, worked in that circumstance and through that prophet. But for the most part, the, the prophets of Israel were called by the Lord and sent by the Lord to speak to Israel. And uh, we understand that what they had to say was not just their own thoughts, their own ideas, but they were to speak Exactly and only the message that was revealed to them by the Lord. So, therefore, you see this kind of phrasing occur over and over again through the various uh, prophetic books and prophetic stories. Um, the word of the Lord came onto Isaiah the prophet, or Jeremiah the prophet, or Ezekiel the prophet. And the idea being that the Lord, in a specific moment of that prophet's life and assignment, um, they're calling to function as the Lord's messenger, had to first receive a message from the Lord. The Lord revealed to each one of the prophets something of his great plan and purpose, his words and his will, but he revealed it in every single case to even the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He revealed those things in part, meaning there was not a full and complete and exhaustive revelation of all that God wanted to communicate to his people and that was intentional because the, the, the types or the symbols that we see in the Old Testament point forward in part to the greater fulfillment that would come and arrive, of course, in the person of Christ. Uh, so they revealed the word of God to the people of God as God revealed his word first to them in part. And their uh, practical carrying out of that ins- assignment involved instruction, instruction, correction, exhortation, and encouragement in the ways of God according to the needs of the people. And generally speaking, there were some exceptions to this, but generally speaking, the prophets were sent at moments of national crisis, moments when the people of God most needed to hear from the Lord, and oftentimes when the people of God were not listening to the Lord, and what he had previously revealed in the way that they should. And so the prophets were sent to, um, to arrest the attention of the people and to call them back to the Lord, call them back to a right relationship with the word of God, call them back to the right relationship with the ways of God. All right. Where I'd like to start is not so much in uh, an old Testament passage. We'll get there in just a moment, but I want to start with two new Testament passages that, that simply describe for us how Christ functions as the fulfillment of all that the prophets point forward to in symbol. The first one, we studied this a long time ago now, though, for our Thursday night studies when we went through the book of Hebrews. We studied this in detail together, and that is in Hebrews chapter one. And I'll read from the very beginning, verse one. So Hebrews one, one and two. This is, uh, I would I would say, along with the next two passages, we're going to read one of the three most important passages that, that specifically identify Christ as the fulfillment of God's great purpose in uh, revealing himself and his words to the prophets and then sending the prophets to the people of God. Uh, verse 1, Hebrews 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, in a way that only inspired scripture can do, everything that I just spent five minutes describing Paul the Apostle by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he communicates the essence of that in a single single statement, a single line. Long ago, which is pointing to uh, uh, an extended era of what we call Old Covenant or Old Testament history, we're talking about here now, everything from the days of Adam until the arrival of John the Baptist. Everything in that time period is being addressed by this phrase long ago. At many times, just emphasizes that God didn't speak only one single time during the era of what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, but he spoke many different times through many different prophets. And then this third descriptive in many ways. So even though the prophets all functioned in a similar role and in a similar way, there were distinctions and differences in the way God communicated to them and then ultimately the way God communicated through them. There were nuances of difference. Uh, Some were given more to reveal than others. Obviously Moses was giving given the bulk of the revelation of the Lord to the people of God uh, in his great assignment as the lawgiver. Uh, other prophets like Isaiah, with the longest book in the Bible other than the book of Psalms, uh, 66 chapters of prophetic revelation, and then others still, like um, the prophet Obadiah, who you know represents one of the shortest prophetic revelations of the Lord um, among all of the prophets. But God being the one in each case who spoke to those prophets and then through the prophets, sending them as messengers to the people, ultimately spoke to the people. Uh, He spoke to our fathers. This is not a gender-specific thing, just speaking of our ancestors. He spoke to those that came before us the prior generations of Israel. And this simply emphasizing what I've already emphasized, which is the primary assignment of the prophets of the Old Testament was to the people of God, to the the people of the covenant. And then in verse 2, this small, connective, and contrasting word, but. So long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... So now there's a similarity, but there's going to be an important and and critically uh, essential contrast being drawn. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so there's a new era that has dawned with the arrival of the son of God into this world. And like he spoke in old times through the various prophets, each in their own moment of history. Now, in this new era, he is spoken by his son. Now, what's important to recognize is, though it's not spelled out, it's clearly implied and certainly indicated by the way this is phrased, the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2, is that all that was spoken to the prophets in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, was preliminary and preparatory, meaning it was all in and of itself the Word of God and still functions as the fully inspired and wonderful Word of God, but it was preparatory to an additional revelation, a new amount of information, and and that being revealed by God to someone beyond the prophets, so to speak, and that, of course, is pointing to the the person that's introduced in verse two, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The idea being that it it doesn't mean that once the son arrives, and there there are some well-intentioned Christians who have actually done this kind of thing, I certainly uh, would want to make sure we wouldn't be confused in the way they were and follow their mistaken good intentions some who you know, feel like once Christ arrived and once he began to speak, that in, in essence then invalidated everything that had been previously revealed in the Old Testament and invalidated everything that had previously been revealed through the prophets of the Old Testament. And so there are those who, who essentially have just like ripped their Bible in half and thrown away what we call the Old Testament scriptures, leaving only the New Testament and with a special emphasis on what is known traditionally as the red letter portions of the New Testament. Some, As you know, some Bibles are, are printed with the words of Christ in red ink, the idea being that those words rise above all other words and therefore invalidate any words from God that had previously come before that. That's a a, a failed way to understand the relationship between verse 1 and 2. It's a failed way to understand the relationship between Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's a failed way to understand the, the function of God's progressive revelation through history leading up to Christ and culminating in Christ, but not invalidating anything that came before it other than in the sense of what we call prophetic fulfillment. There are certain aspects and elements of our old covenant relationship with the Lord that were fulfilled in the greater revelation and the greater work of Christ and then set aside, not in the sense of of we're throwing that away, but in the sense of we no longer practice that because the work of Christ has fulfilled that. Example being, of course, the sacrificial system of the law of Moses. We no longer offer uh, blood sacrifices of animals in order to um, experience the benefits of an atonement relationship with the Lord, all of that being fulfilled in the, in the blood sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Uh, but nevertheless, we still read those portions that speak about the animal sacrifices and we learn from them and we gain wisdom and understanding from them understanding them in the greater framework now of the fulfillment of Christ. So in these last days, what the emphasis is saying though, is in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What I want you to notice is verse three then changes the subject and doesn't continue to speak about exactly the same material. Verse three goes on to say, he, speaking of the son of God, speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and it goes on now to describe him. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is there's no further progression beyond the Son of God and what is revealed to us through and by the Son of God. So it's not like, okay, in the Old Testament, God spoke to us this way through Moses and the other prophets. Then in the new era, new covenant, God has spoken to us in Christ and then In the same way that the Old Testament revelation was preparatory, the new covenant revelation in Christ is also preparatory. And then there's some third new way of God making himself known by revelation to his people. There is no third new way. Christ is the ultimate revelation of all that God has ever intended and will ever intend to communicate to humanity. There's nothing in God's heart to communicate to human beings beyond Christ. So this sees the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic role in the person of Christ and in the work of Christ and in the words of Christ. Because like God spoke through the prophets, now he has spoken through Christ. And there is in that sense... Nothing more to say beyond what has been said in the person of Christ. All right, let's look at another passage. This one is also, should be very familiar to you, Gospel of John, chapter one. And did I not have a ton of material ahead of me to cover? I would read all the verses preceding this verse, but I'm just gonna skip directly to well I'll read verse one, and then I'm going to skip directly down to verse 14. In the beginning, and this is John's way of connecting God's work in Christ to the original way that he described the beginning of all things in Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then skipping down to verse 14. And the Word, and I want you to think of Word here as God's communication to humanity. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And truth. So the incarnation of Christ resulted in the ultimate and final prophetic expression to human beings, from God's heart to us. to not just to those of us who believe but to all human beings. Of course what was communicated has, Much greater significance and meaning for those of us who believe, but even for those who do not believe, that their their lack of faith, their their absence of belief in what is communicated in Christ, doesn't undermine what God has communicated. He's made a a full, an ultimate and final communication through His Son. All right, now with that, let's do head back to the Old Testament. And I said we're going to make a special emphasis on connecting among all the prophets, Christ to Moses. And this passage is the most direct and useful one for that purpose. And that is found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I do believe uh, when Steve was uh, focused on this subject in systematic theology that he covered this passage as well. But it's it's such an important one. It's well worth revisiting So, Moses functioned at his moment in history as the prophet of God, the one that was called by God, the one that was sent by God, the one that received more revelation from God than any prophet before him had received. And the primary emphasis of what was revealed to him was what we call now the law of God, and at the beginning of the Exodus journey of Israel, the Lord led the children of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, ordered them to camp at the foot of the mountain, and then called Moses up to the summit of Mount Sinai, where the Lord himself, in the uh, clothe, the clothing or the cloak of the, the pillar of cloud, um, that led them through the wilderness. The Lord, and that, in that cloud, descended upon the summit, rested upon the summit. The cloud covered the entire summit of the mountain, uh, filled with the Shekinah glory of God because of the presence of God on the mountaintop, the manifest presence of the Lord. And what we studied was a Christophany. And he called Moses to join him in the cloud. Moses did. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And he received the revelation of the law, and all you know, all hundreds of the the individual laws of Moses, and he received also the blueprint or the plans for the construction of the tabernacle, and then they, after that 40-day time period, ended. Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and. Um, in spite of the failures of the people while he was on the mountaintop. Because of the mercy of God, they continued their journey for the next 40 years through the wilderness. That brings us to Deuteronomy. They're at the tail end now. They're at the very the very end of the 40-year journey, and they've come to the edge of the wilderness. They've come to the River Jordan, and they've come to the moment where God is about to lead them across the river Jordan into the promised land. But before he does, he has Moses rehearse the law a second time. And that's where we get the the name Deuteronomy for the book. It literally means second law. It's the second telling of the law or the second revelation of the law. And while there are some identical elements in the second telling of the law, to the first telling of the law on Mount Sinai, there are some new elements that are added, some additional information that is revealed that had not previously been revealed in the the revelation of Moses on the mountaintop. And this that we're about to read is one of those new and additional elements that's now being revealed to Moses and is through him going to be revealed to the people. And it's a revelation from the Lord about another prophet that's going to succeed Moses, but not immediately. We do know that Moses was succeeded by Joshua, his assistant who was used by the Lord to lead them into the promised land. But this isn't referring to Joshua, this is referring to another prophet coming somewhere down the road in the unknown future. So Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, the Lord speaks to Moses, And Moses says this to the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Meaning simply, he's going to be of the nation of Israel like Moses himself was. And he's going to be raised up by God like Moses was. And it's going to happen at some unspecified future date. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Hebron on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. He's referencing and rehearsing for them what was still a strong memory In their perspective, but it was from 40 years before. But it was such a strong experience that I don't think any of them had forgotten what had happened on that day when the Lord first came down on Mount Horeb, which is just another name for Sinai. When you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die, that's referencing the fire of the Lord's glory, glorified presence on the mountaintop. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, um, all good and solid Old Testament theologians take this as a direct reference describing, without naming him, describing the arrival of Christ into this world in his special role as the ultimate prophet of God, meaning that he is going to function like the prophecy said. Both Moses and the Lord emphasized it in this section. He's going to be a prophet like Moses, so there's going to be a similarity to Moses I'm going to give us in a moment. A list of similarities to Moses that Jesus fulfilled. But he's going to also be unlike Moses in that he's going to fulfill a prophetic role and responsibility even greater than the role of Moses. And of course, in the eyes of Israel, for hundreds of years after the days of Moses, and even among unbelieving Jews, I'm talking about those that fail to believe that Christ is this prophet that's referenced here in this prophecy and who deny Christ as prophet or Messiah to the people of God. Um, There is still a perspective among modern-day Jewish people that Moses is the greatest prophet that ever lived. And certainly, I would agree with their perspective in part. I would say among all of the natural prophets, meaning uh, prophet chosen among natural human beings, you could certainly make a case that Moses was the greatest of all of them. And the Lord certainly revealed uh, the most important information to him and through him to the people of God. But ultimately, Christ is an even greater prophet than Moses. Now, turning from this Deuteronomy passage, let's just jump over just so we can see it with our own eyes. We studied this not too long ago, um, but it might not have caught your attention when we did. In the book of Acts, chapter 3, Peter quotes Deuteronomy chapter 18. He quotes it in public. And uh, he's the, the location here is uh, what was called, remember, the Porch of Solomon. It was that, that exterior portion of the temple grounds that was considered part of the, the, the temple precinct, but not inside, it was outside. And it's where, as the people of God, in the days of Jesus, in the days of Peter and the apostles, uh, they would gather in this porch area, it's a gigantic out, outdoor patio area, beautiful with, with some some um, covering over their heads and some out uh, completely outside portions and uh, During one of those times there, at the beginning of chapter three is a miraculous healing that the Lord used uh, both. Peter and John to accomplish. And then we'll pick up now after the healing's been accomplished and a great crowd has gathered. We'll pick up now in chapter three and read from verse 22. If we had time, we'd, we'd revisit the whole context, but you've kind of got the backdrop now. This is Peter speaking publicly, not just to believers, but to all of the Jews that were present on Solomon's porch that day. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What Peter does in essence here is he quotes that critically important prophecy of a new and second prophet that would come at some unspecified future time to Israel from among the Israelites and who would function like Moses functioned in his ministry to the people. And Peter, of course, takes that passage and under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, applies it to Christ and sees the fulfillment of that promise that God gave through Moses, uh, sees the fulfillment of that in the person of Christ. And then one last preparatory passage. This is going back now to the Gospel of John again, chapter one, we left off, I read uh, chapter one, verse 14 a moment ago. Now we're gonna read verse 17. John 1, I'll just, I'll pick up where I left off. I'll I'll read verse 14 again. We'll read through uh, 17. Actually, I'll read through 18. I think I finally figured out what I'm going to read, so hang in there with me. (laughs) Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is John the Baptist being referenced, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. This is John's testimony to the preexistence of Christ. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And then verse 17, our key verse, For the law was given through Moses. Special prophetic assignment. I mean, if you can imagine... You know, God, God intended his revealed law to serve a special and specific purpose in the ongoing generations of his covenant people. And Moses was privileged among all human beings that ever lived to be the first recipient of the law as God revealed it to him, and then the, the faithful a messenger to carry that law. Uh, represented first and foremost, of course, by the, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone, but all of the hundreds of individual laws God uh, revealed to Moses. So the law was given through Moses, and then this contrast and comparison. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the idea being here that that while the word prophet isn't used in this passage for either describing the ministry of Moses or the ministry of Jesus Christ. They're both being described in their prophetic ministry. Moses' prophetic ministry focused on the law, the prophetic ministry of Christ on an additional revelation and a greater revelation. It's described here as grace and truth. I could describe it using a single word, the gospel. The idea being that... um, The law law was revealed through Moses, the gospel was revealed through Jesus Christ. Why is the second revelation inherently greater than the first? Because the most that the law can do is reveal to us the truth of who God is, the truth of our uh, true spiritual condition before him, uh, the failures that are on our record and falling short of God's holy and righteous standards and then our desperate need of atonement or of salvation because of our multiple failures, but the law cannot actually save us. Whereas the revelation through Jesus Christ of grace and truth in the gospel is a saving revelation, a saving message. It can carry us where the law could not. Um, This is kind of pictured for us in the In the actual ministry of Moses, you know the story of how God called Moses to lead, to deliver the children of Israel out of slavery to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh into the wilderness, through the wilderness, right up to the precipice of the Promised Land, but Moses was not allowed to take them across the river and into the actual Promised Land. Uh, it, It rested on the shoulders of another to take them in, whereas Christ here is, in that comparison, represented more perfectly by the role of Joshua, his name being the same name as, as Jesus, just in its Hebrew form. The idea that Joshua was able to take them into the Promised Land, whereas Moses was not. So the law can only take us so far, and then the gospel is necessary to take us further. And then the final verse, 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. So um, the greatest revelation of Christ is even not even fully uh, encompassed by the words of the gospel, not to diminish the importance of the gospel, but the idea being he revealed even more than the message of the gospel. He and he alone was able to fully reveal God the Father to humanity. All right, I said we would look at some specific uh, comparisons then between the ministry of Christ and the ministry of Moses. And I'm going to, there's probably more than just these seven, but I picked out the seven, what I consider the seven most important key elements in the special prophetic ministry of Moses. And um, I'm going to draw specific comparisons in each case to a similar but greater ministry in, uh, as a as a prophet of God in the person of Christ. All right, so the first element that sets Moses apart as a special prophet of God is he was called by a miraculous sign event. When the Lord called the various prophets of the Old Testament, um, he did not in every case do a miracle at the moment of him calling them into their prophetic assignment and role. But for Moses, he did. You remember the... Special miracle that God did to call Moses into his role as the lawgiver, he appeared to him in the event we call the burning bush. In which, uh, and we saw that in our study through the Christophanies, we saw that as a Christophany, in that the glory of God for a moment in history inhabited a bush. Doesn't mean that, that God incarnated, the Lord incarnated as a bush, he certainly did not. But for that moment, for that exchange, for that interaction between uh, the Lord and Moses, he, in a sense, overshadowed a bush. And his glory caused the bush to catch fire. But the miraculous element was that while the bush was burning, it was not being consumed. So it was therefore not a natural physical fire. It was a fire of God's glory. And there was a whole message involved in that for Moses and an encouragement and exhortation contained within the mode in which God revealed himself to Moses and called Moses into the ministry. Now, when Jesus began his ministry, God also did a special miracle, but it was not a burning bush miracle. Um, These are, their similarities is in the miracle. And the distinction and differences is in the nature of the miracle. So what was the miracle that God did when he called? Of course, before the foundation of the world, Jesus, you can make a case that Jesus was called to be the ultimate prophet of God. But at his moment in history, during a specific moment of his life in this world, when he was 30 years old, God did a miracle in order to make it clear, not so much for the sake of Jesus, but for the sake of those that you know were going to be benefited by his ministry, God did a miracle in his calling. And the miracle was, of course, the event of the baptism by John the Baptist, in which as he came up out of the water, uh, John the Baptist had his spiritual eyes open and he was able to perceive that there was a form of a dove that descended from heaven and came to rest directly on the head of the Lord Jesus and remained there, and that, of course, being a symbol of his special and unique relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that being the empowering aspect or element of the works that he would do over the course of the next three years in his public ministry as the ultimate prophet of the Lord. So they both Moses and Jesus were called by miraculous sign. Second element, uh, Moses... Worked redemptive miracles by the purpose of God and by the power of God, by God's special assignment for Him. Um, There's more than one prophet in the Old Testament that worked miracles. Um, You, you of course, would probably think of Elijah the prophet. Uh, You might think, and rightly so, of his successor Elisha, who worked probably twice. The number of of miracles that Elijah worked. Each one of those three, though, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha had a very special assignment in the history of God's dealing with his people, Moses being the first of the miraculous prophets. And um, probably uh, in at least up until his moment in history, the greatest of them. And the miracles that he did, of course, were associated with the delivering work that the Lord did in rescuing the children of Israel from their circumstance of slavery to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians in the events that we call the 10 plagues, which were really an outpouring of 10 judgments from the Lord. Each one, if we had time, we don't. If we had the opportunity, we don't. But each one of those 10 plague judgments was a miracle which was associated with a specific false God that the Egyptians worshipped, and it was the Lord's testimony that he was greater than that God. But those miracles function in a redemptive way. They weren't just God showing off, you know, throwing out displays of power just to garner some attention. Uh, each one was was a ramping up of God's work of judgment leading to the 10th the and the ultimate one in the event of the exodus, uh, the night of the Passover, um, and the execution of the firstborn sons of all of the Egyptians throughout the land of Egypt, with the only exception being in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, and the faithful ones that obeyed the Lord and his instructions to remain in their homes and under the uh, protecting element of the, the, uh, the doorway to their homes being painted with the blood of a sacrificed Passover lamb. And so uh, Moses did these 10 great redeeming miracles in order to deliver the children of Israel from their slavery. Christ, of course, is the greatest miracle worker in all of Scripture, and all of those miracles are functioning as part of or expressions of his role as prophet. All of the miracles that Christ did are expressions of his prophetic role, not so much his kingly role or his high priestly role. Each one of those has their own special elements, but the the miracles are associated with his role as prophet, and all of the miracles of Christ were redemptive miracles. Never once did Christ do a miracle, and we studied many of them when we went through the Gospel of Matthew together and saw that each one had its own symbolic purpose connected to it. Yes, a real-world miracle, God uh, overwhelming what we would call the laws of nature, doing something supernatural in order to uh, fulfill a special purpose in his heart, Uh, but each one of those being associated with the redemptive purpose of the Lord, and all culminating in the greatest miracle that Christ ever did. What was the greatest miracle that Christ ever did? He rose from the dead. Now that is that is described in the Scripture as the Father raised Christ, and that's certainly true. The Holy Spirit raised Christ, and that was certainly true. But there are passages that very clearly and definitively describe that Christ rose from the dead, all three members of the Godhead being fully involved and fully engaged and fully operative in the miraculous power that was exerted in his resurrection. And that is the ultimate and greatest of the redeeming miracles of Christ. So in that way, he's like Moses and yet doing something far greater than even the greatest miracle that Moses ever did, which was none of the 10 plagues the greatest miracle that Moses ever did was, of course, the splitting of the Red Sea by the, by the staff of God and causing the children of Israel to walk on dry ground into their freedom and into their deliverance, but the resurrection of Christ um, outweighing even that great miracle of Moses. Okay, third element of connection between the two of them. And all of these seven elements, remember, are similarities between the role of Moses as prophet and the role of Christ as prophet, but seeing an an even greater expression in the ministry of Christ. Uh, Third is Moses delivered Israel from slavery. He was a deliverer. He was a savior. Now, does that mean that every person that left Egypt with Under the the leadership of Moses, everyone that was delivered from their circumstance of slavery was spiritually saved and had a righteous relationship with the Lord. No, they were naturally and practically saved or delivered from their circumstance of slavery. Now, how does this relate to Christ? I'll just give you, I won't take time to turn to it, but Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, if you're taking notes, for freedom Christ has set us free. And the idea being that his saving work, his, his delivering work, his redeeming work was a work like Moses to deliver us from slavery, but our slavery was even deeper and greater than the slavery of the Israelites. It wasn't just a natural circumstance of slavery, but a spiritual circumstance of our hearts being enslaved to our sin. And of course, in the saving work of Christ on the cross, We were delivered from the power of sin to hold us enslaved and delivered into the freedom of a new relationship with a new master, that new master being Christ himself. All right, the fourth element. Moses, in his role as a prophet, received on the mountaintop in that 40-day and 40-night A period in the glory cloud of the Lord, he received the revelation of the law. And we've already um, emphasized from from John chapter 1, uh, verse 17, that while that was an awesome revelation that he received, um, the greatest revelation that had been given to any human being in history up until that moment on the mountaintop, uh, what was revealed through Christ. The gospel of our salvation is a far greater, far more far-reaching, far more powerful, far more life-transforming message than the law of God revealed to and through Moses. Next thing, uh, this is now the one, two, three, four, fifth element. Uh, Moses received the plan on the mountaintop. Not just the Ten Commandments, not just the two tablets of the law, but he received the plan for the construction of the tabernacle of God, the structure that would, from that moment forward in history, become the central meeting place between God and his people and would allow, for the first time in history, God to dwell in. In the midst of his people, from the time of the Garden of Eden, I wish I had more time to describe and explain this this tra- this uh, uh, progression of what God was doing in, in His revelatory and redeeming work. But from the time of the Garden of Eden forward, God had a relationship with those that He called and saved, but it was a relationship of some distance. For the first time since the garden, where God had walked with Adam in the garden, now God would walk in the midst of, and not just walk, but camp in the midst of the camp of Israel, and only would be able to do that without violating any of his holy and righteous nature and standards by the construction of the tabernacle, in which there would be special provision, merciful and gracious provision for a sacrificial system that would enable God to uh, atone for the sins of his people and to enjoy fellowship with them because of the benefits of that atonement. So that was a wonderful thing. I mean, it was an awesome thing. And it's probably a thing that doesn't get enough credit in the ministry of Moses as prophet. The revelation of the tabernacle. And of course, God revealed something similar to Christ, but something Far greater even than what had been revealed to Moses. And that is, God gave to Christ the plan for the construction of a new structure that would take the place of both the tabernacle and eventually the stone temple that succeeded it. And that is the construction of the church. And we see this emphasized in Matthew 16 18. um, I will, Christ declaring, I will build my church and the gates of. Hell will not prevail against it. Uh, A structure and, and and a spiritual one at that of something that Christ would be building through the progression of new covenant history to follow. And because of this new structure, there would be a new and permanent dwelling place for the Lord in the midst of his people and a new avenue through which we would enjoy the fullness of redeemed fellowship with the one who dwells in that structure along with us. All right, the sixth element, Moses shepherded Israel through the wilderness. Moses was a prophet, but one of his prophetic assignments, one of his prophetic responsibilities, was he functioned as a shepherd of the people. He wasn't just someone who received a message from God came down the mountain, delivered the message to the people and said, just deal with it, and then turned away from the people and refused to interact with them from that point forward. The the revelation he gave to the people then um, led him into an even greater assignment to shepherd them in their relationship with the Lord in terms of what had been revealed in the law, knowing full well the many many ways and times that the people would fall short of the standards that were required of them in the law and they needed a faithful shepherd to help them through that difficult process of you know how do we how do we deal with our own failures what does god require of us what is our perspective to be what is our attitude to be what is our behavior to be and moses was responsible to faithfully shepherd them through that whole process Uh, I would just link that, of course, to the famous portion in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, in which Christ uh, reveals himself to be the ultimate shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. And then later in in, um, 1 Peter, chapter 5, Peter takes that same theme and emphasizes that Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. Of his new covenant sheep, and that uh, our journey is is not a limited journey of to just 40 years through a, a specific wilderness, but um, for however many years and through whatever circumstances the Lord leads us in our life in this world in our covenant relationship with Him, we have the assurance of a of a of a righteous. And holy and and ultimately powerful and awesome relationship with the greatest shepherd, far greater than the shepherding ministry of Moses. And then the final element that I see in, in terms of Moses' prophetic ministry is that Moses was given the special privilege on the mountain. This was when he was in the presence of the Lord. And at a certain point, though God had revealed so much of himself to Moses, more than had been revealed to any other human being up until that moment in history, what Moses saw was was only a, a portion of what could be seen and what could be known of the Lord and his glory. And you might remember at one point, Moses cried out to the Lord and he prayed specifically, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord was very accommodating to Moses and was very gracious to him. And the Lord said, okay, I'm going to reveal my glory to you. I'm gonna show you my glory, but I can't show you everything because if I did show you everything, what would happen to Moses? Moses would die. He'd be so overwhelmed by it. It would literally um, overwhelm his human circuits, and he'd be obliterated in the experience of seeing the fullness of God's glory. So what the Lord did graciously uh, was he accommodated the, the physical weakness and incapacity, the spiritual incapacity of Moses, and he put him in a cleft of the rock, and he covered him with his own hand, and he passed by proclaiming his own glorious name, and in doing so showed him his glory. But as he passed by, he then removed his hand for a moment and allowed Moses to see what? of the glory of God. What was behind? And I've re-translated that by the concept of he allowed Moses to see God's afterglow. He, the Lord allowed him to see the afterglow of his glory. He couldn't see the direct emanation of God's glory. It would be too much, but he, he could see the, the afterglow. And in seeing the afterglow, he had, he had seen more than any human being had ever seen of the Lord up until that moment in history. And then we'll link that to this wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And let me just read that and this will be our last for tonight. 2 Corinthians 4. All of chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 4 are the build-up to this portion. But for our time, I'll just read starting in verse 4. In their case, and he's speaking here about unbelievers, those who are spiritually perishing. In their case, the God of this world, and that's a reference to the activity and presence of Satan. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, this is a reference back to Genesis 1, verse 3, where God started the work of creation by saying the word light in an active verb sense. Light be. Now, he quotes that and says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, which were previously darkened, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the comparison here is God allowed Moses to see a a downgraded expression of God's glory. But now you and I in the new covenant are allowed to see an even far greater expression of glory We're not looking at the behind parts of the Lord. We're not looking at the back of the Lord. We're not looking at the afterglow of the Lord. We are spiritually looking at the face of Jesus Christ. And from that face is emanating the fullness of the glory of God, a much greater revelation than Moses was ever allowed to see. All right, we'll end here with, I'm just going to briefly state these. I'm not going to give a big explanation. I'm not going to give any passages. I said that each one of these special roles and the per- persons that were selected by the Lord to symbolically represent Christ, they all, there are exceptions, meaning they fell short of, of representing Christ in his fullness. Here are four exceptions of how Moses fell short of representing Christ as a symbol, Number one, in his original calling, Moses was reluctant to accept and obey the calling of God as a prophet. You remember the, the burning bush incident. Moses was arguing with the Lord, and he was, at one point he even said, don't send me, send Aaron. He's a much better choice. And you know, the Lord had to overwhelm his objections. There was not, no such reluctance or objection or hesitation on the part of Christ in his calling to be God's prophet. Uh, second, Moses... Later in the wilderness journey, near the end of the journey, the 40 years in the wilderness, and, and there were good reasons for him to, to cross this line. I mean, the Lord knows I probably would have crossed the line before Moses ever did, but Moses ultimately did cross the line in frustration, and he sinned in his prophetic role when at one point when the Lord told him to speak to the rock, and water, life-giving water, would come from it, which was all a, an image, a symbol of, of salvation. And Moses, in his frustration, took the staff, and instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it twice, which uh, which ruined the portrayal of salvation in that image because the idea was that Christ had already been struck in the first rock incident, and to strike the rock a second time was to portray that somehow... Christ needed to die twice on the, on the cross in the future, which, of course, was not true. So, you know, the comparison with Moses and Christ, Moses f- fully falls short because Christ never once sinned in his prophetic role or any of his roles. Uh, third, Moses, and, and I mentioned this earlier, Moses was able to was and did effectively accomplish the deliverance of God's people out of their slavery, but he was never able to lead them because of his sin. He was never able to lead them across the river Jordan and into the promised land. Christ did both. He led us out of our slavery and he will lead us to our final destination. And then the final one, um, Moses revealed the law and Christ revealed something even far greater in that he revealed the fullness of the gospel to us. All right, that ends our study on Christ in the Old Testament roles as portrayed by the prophet role. Lord Willie. next Thursday, we'll tackle uh, the high priest role. God bless you.